G'day mate, Forty here on the Manly Fast Ferry. Alright, we're getting ready to rocket over to Manly from Circular Quay, which is uh, by the Sydney Opera House. So there's, the, there's the Opera House. Here we go. So, fast ferry takes about uh, 14 minutes, regular ferry takes about 24. And we're off. Just love being on Sydney Harbour. Could you have a negative view of life when you're in a place like this? It's funny, I brought my, my laptop with me and there's this tiny pinprick of light which <laughs> is just bugging me. So when I watch shows on my laptop, like I like to chill out at the end of the day, you know, I'm walking about 10 miles a day. Oh, Phyllis Carlisle, influential talent manager and producer. I interviewed her. Okay, she, she just died. So I did, did a book with about 60 interviews of Hollywood uh, producers and uh, she, she was one of them. Uh, she started out as a casting director, so most of the producers I interviewed, they started out as lawyers. So she managed the careers of William Defoe, Gina Davis, Melanie Griffith, Andy Garcia, John Malkovic. She produced films including Seven and The Accidental Tourist. She was just a great interview. Just so raw. And uh, she says, Ayn Rand said something once in a book that stayed with me my whole life. You know everything you need to know about somebody in the first 30 seconds, and you spend the rest of the time you know them learning that you were right. Her first producing credit was on The Accidental Tourist. Remember that movie from 1988? Okay. She was a great interview, just uh, really frank. So I talked to her around 2003. looking through my, my Apple iPhone and uh, it had this article on nine phrases you can use to brighten someone's day. And I really wanted to share this with you because like, brighten someone's day had just the perfect article to accompany some video of uh, Sydney Harbour. 
okay. So having purpose in life is associated with greater life satisfaction and better health, right? So here we go. Use these nine little phrases to instantly brighten someone's day. But I think what's more important than the words is your state. Right? If you're a gloomy Gus and you're using these phrases to brighten someone's day, I don't think they're going to be terribly brightening. But it's true, we do underestimate how happy we can make other people, particularly when we give them a compliment. So say, I am proud of you. Yeah. So you can use this with big achievements like a promotion or a graduation, but there are all sorts of little things when people make progress, when they try something for the first time, when they demonstrate good character. Right? You can say, I'm proud of you. Another one is, I see your gifts. I remember in my days as a worker, like how much it would mean to me at times when I was struggling that uh, someone would you know, appreciate me and uh, see my gifts. Tell me more about that. Right? Ask people to tell you more about their interests, feelings, and experiences. Find out what's important to them. Ask them to elaborate on their experiences. Invite them to go deeper. Share their perspective. Tell me more about how you interpreted that feedback. Right, so here's the picture. Tell someone, you know, there's someone, and then there's someone after you tell them, I love you as you are. <laughs> I just feel lucky you're on our team. I admire you. I love spending time with you. I am grateful for you. The expressions of gratitude start a positive upward cycle. Thank you for cooking dinner. I'm grateful for your insightful comments in that meeting. Thank you for a great phone call. And you are making a difference. Right? Remind people the ripple effect of their actions. Point out how their work accumulates to make a bigger impact on the world. You inspire me. And the way you show up for your friends and your family. It's made me think about how I can be a better friend. You can do this. Right? We've all struggled with gaining confidence. So uh, there's someone close to me who my father would inspire and helped her get through law school. They kept telling her, you can do this, you can do this. Help them to reframe the obstacle into a challenge point out a recent win, remind them of past successes, and you changed my life. Think about someone who's had an impact on your life, but who you never properly thanked. Okay, want to sound and feel more confident? Ditch these 11 phrases from your vocabulary, say psychologists. People who are good at small talk Always avoid these seven mistakes. All right, I want to go for that one. Assuming that nobody wants to talk to you. Yeah, I've often gotten into that kind of slump. I'm out and about just feeling awkward in a social interaction. I just assume that no one wants to talk to me. Interrupting or intruding upon an existing conversation. I have done that a lot. Start talking without having something to say. Approaching controversial topics, being hard to follow, talking too much about yourself, 
or about the other person. Nobody likes to feel interrogated. Man, I've done that a lot. If you sense that your questions aren't welcome, back off. Yeah, this is something I need to hear. Instead, tell a story, offer an opinion. Otherwise, relieve them of the burden of performance. Wasting someone's time. Don't stare at the floor, look over their shoulder, put your phone away, be present. Okay, 11 common grammar mistakes that make people cringe. Yeah, I didn't realize there was all this good stuff on CNBC. Oh, it was funny. On uh, on Twitter, I have a, an acquaintance, like an online friend, who routinely sends me about you know 20 messages a day on Twitter, and uh, I, I enjoy looking through them. I, I respond when it's you know something that uh, speaks to me. Uh, so yesterday, after getting you know the latest batch of 20 messages that I didn't respond to. I suddenly find I'm blocked. How bizarre is that? Like you have a friend who's like sending you, or online friend I've never met, you know, sending you all these pictures of himself and you know all the places he's going, which is fine. You know, like there's a lot of you know there's some good quality content in there, and boom, you get blocked. Okay, 11 extremely common grammar mistakes that make people cringe. Okay, apostrophes in the wrong place. Unnecessary apostrophes. Okay, every day is one word, it's two days. Confusing I, me. So the manager told Riley and I should be the manager told Riley and me. It's versus IT apostrophe S, of course, less or fewer. So fewer is for numbers, less is for things that can't be counted. Use less with numbers when they are a single or a total unit that measures distance, amount, or time. And less than 30% of us bothered learning these rules. Lie or lay. I could just lay down and go to sleep. Wrong, I could just lie down and go to sleep. So to lie is intransitive, which means it doesn't have an object and doesn't do anything to anyone or anything else. To lay is transitive, which means it does have an object. Okay, I get this wrong. So it's something or someone, the verb is doing something to someone. I lay down my head. So you can say, I lay myself down. Confusing loose with lose. All right, that's obvious. That and who. The people that reach their sales target will get a reward. Uh, The people who reach, then versus then. Use then, T-H-E-N, when you're talking about time. Use then when you're comparing things. Okay, there is a location. T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E is a contraction and T-H-E-I-R is a possession, is a possessive, meaning ownership. You and your. Okay. Most of these are pretty dumb. Getting closer to manly. 
So if you get anxious about traveling, I know I do, but it's a lot better when you have friends, right, and community. Like when there's a synagogue that you can go to, or if you go to a church or a mosque or whatever your community is, there's a there's a community there. Wherever you're going, it makes everything so much easier. Friends, community, they teach you how to navigate, you know, new surroundings. And normally I can travel all around Sydney for just like a dollar a day, but uh, I didn't realize the fast manly ferry costs $10.50 Australian. So if this was a regular ferry, it cost me nothing. So now I'm out $7 American. Live and learn. This fast ferry has not been particularly fast. And mainly is North Sydney. It's got the second most famous beach in Sydney after Bondi. So I'm just scrolling through Apple's News Plus, $10 a month. And get subscriptions essentially to 100 different magazines. Man, I was so excited this morning when Australia got an opening goal on France, went out one mil till France answered in the 26 minute and kick three more goals to win going away 4-1. Just like I was so excited when the USA got an early goal over Wales and then surrendered a late goal for a tie. Everyone gets wrong about protein. Man, I regret my lifetime as a vegetarian. A lot of people have ill effects from being vegetarian. It really wrecked my health. So here's a story. When Kerry Forrest's steak arrived in the spring of 2014, she looked around nervously. She had a vegan blog right, with a very successful app. She had a master's degree in nutrition. She ate plenty of beans and soy for protein, yet she was exhausted. She'd been low energy for months, ever since she'd switched to being vegan in 2010. Inspired by the actress Alicia Silverstone and a love of animals, and the hope that she'd give up those stubborn five pounds that kept coming back. And she realized, this isn't working. I felt ashamed. This is my health, I have to make a change. So she search for words how to tell her audience. June 14, 2014, she had published on why I'm no longer vegan. Within hours, she had hundreds of negative comments, such as no true vegan would ever listen to their body and eat animal products. She got bad reviews of her app on the App Store. So many people unsubscribed from her email list, she received an auto email from MailChimp saying her account had been suspended because the company was afraid she'd been hacked. She was alone except for a husband and a therapist. 
but she held on eating beef and chicken steak then two years later the first email came from a negative commenter saying she too had given up being vegan and apologized emails began to trickle in then turned into a small steady stream Then she, she published a post how to reintroduce meat after being vegan or vegetarian. So many people think a high protein diet causes kidney problems in healthy adults. Not true, says this article in Women's Health. So what is that? Do you know? Looks like a dinosaur but smaller. Monitor lizard? Where's the other one? Yes, that's one, ma one magnificent lizard. He knows he's in a safe space. Manly's a pretty beautiful place, mate. Those are just hanging out. He's putting his eye on me. Get ready for your close-up, Mr. Lizard. Doesn't even look like a old dinosaur. And he's magnificent. Giving me the eye.
G'day mate, 40 here, hanging out at Shelly Beach in Manly and uh, I've been watching the World Cup and remember how like Russia's like you know, about the worst nation out there and with, with Putin's new restrictions that uh, Putin's Russia is now approaching you know, Nazi and, and Stalinist levels of terror and that's that's what I'm hearing from from our elites and yet Russia held the last World Cup did it not in 2018 and they were nowhere near the crazy kinds of restrictions and interference with the the press and limits on where you could go and limits on what you could say and limits on photos you could take right so Russia was just like any other first world nation the 2018 World Cup, but 2022 in Qatar, all sorts of ridiculous restrictions being imposed. Seems to be emblematic of how primitive, repressive, medieval the Arab Islamic world is, like, and how far it has to go to catch up to the rest of the world. So very disturbing story I found in the Washington Post, guys. Not sure if you you realize this, but uh, for the LGBTQ community, shooting wasn't first instance of hate in Colorado Springs. This blew me away. I, I thought for sure it was uh, the first instance of hate. But uh, apparently they'd experienced hatred before. My God. So they equate like this shooting with other examples of hatred. Like Club Q was Diamond Kobe Linsky's first gay bar. Right, so this is Diamond is is presumably male, female, trans. And they tried out drag as a teenager, dancing and lip syncing. Is where they came for their first drink. That's nice, where they rang in birthdays with their adoptive family. A lesbian couple that took them in after childhood in foster care. Yeah, you'd think hate didn't date back very far, but then you read this shocking headline, absolutely in the Washington Post. Like this was their chosen family of bartenders, their drag performers, and other upstanding members of the LGBTQ community who gathered at Club Q in Colorado Springs. Now it's become a crime scene. And this has forced Mr. Miss Kobolinski to ponder just how integral this venue for queer life has been. It's a, it's a beacon in a place once known as Hate City. Right? Did you know that uh, Colorado Springs was, was known as Heart City? Club Q is my everything. Safe space is a number. That's the biggest shock meant something this was a safe space okay so let's say other communities tried to create their own safe spaces so catholics create communities where only catholics are welcome hey, jews create communities where only jews are welcome blacks create communities where only blacks are welcome let's imagine whites create communities where only whites are welcome would that also be glorified as a safe space well, this is one of one of 
the only gay bars in Colorado's second largest city. So Colorado Springs, man, it is a hateful place. They only have a limited number of gay bars. Could you imagine living in a city that only has like five gay bars? Just imagine how absolutely stultifying that would be. Did you know that Club Q was a welcoming haven for free expression? One of the capitals of American conservatism. Thank God for the left out there fighting for free expression. What's the all-in cost of an Aussie junket such as this, Luke? So the key to my Aussie junket is bludging. Bludging off my friends and my relatives, right? So I'm not paying anything for rent, not paying anything for hotels. I just have minimal expenses. I'm just uh, paying for my food and that's it. So my, my plane ticket for direct flights was something like 2100. Yeah, Milo was photographed with Kanye, so Milo's always where the action is happening. He, he interned for Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Greene, and he's always, you know, the, the next new thing in populism. So I spent about 2100 for my plane tickets, and then I'm probably spending $20, $25 a day for food. Let's say $20 a day for food. And I'm spending about a dollar a day for public transport. And uh, that's it. Excessive sponging. Yeah. Bludging is the Australian profession where you know, you're, you're living off other people. So when I tell people this in Australia, they say, well, that's what family's for, to, to bludge after. So anyway, this uh, tight-knit LGBTQ community uh, they experience Club Q as a haven for free expression. Well, if you get to choose who you hang out with, you can have free expression. Like, I have free expression when I go to an Orthodox synagogue. I can talk about almost anything at my, my favorite Orthodox synagogues. So you allow people to choose who they hang out with, and free expression just wondrously, miraculously appears. You don't even have to put any effort into it. But we destroyed freedom of association with 1960s civil rights laws. So now only sacred groups get to have safe spaces and freedom of expression. So the rest of us have to put up with all sorts of unwanted diversity and unwanted restrictions on speech because we're not part of a sacred group like the LGBTQ community. Uh, they get to have safe spaces. They get to have free speech, which, which the, the rest of us did too. Did you know that Colorado Springs was struggling to move past its label as ground zero for the evangelical push to limit gay rights? It's a tendentious way of, of phrasing things. Right? The evangelical push to limit gay rights right, is a reaction to the incredible expansion of gay rights and the preservation of safe spaces for evangelical Christians. So who is this worst optics for, uh, Milo or Kanye? I have no idea. I, I can't. Kanye doesn't make any sense to me. It's not someone I can relate to. Uh, Milo sometimes makes sense to me. I, I can't take either of them terribly seriously.
But this notion that right, Colorado Springs is ground zero for the evangelical push to limit gay rights, that when you keep expanding rights, you hamper the rights of other groups. Right? You expand LGBTQ rights, right? You're limiting you're limiting rights for Christians. Yeah, they're helping each other circle the drain. <laughs> Right, you expand you know, rights for minorities that comes at the expense of the majority. It's not like rights is just something that you can endlessly expand for, for different groups and there's never going to be a backlash. Yeah, the mile high air compromises thought processes. Like, just imagine they, they do this, this article in a headline for LGBT community, shooting wasn't first instance of hate in Colorado Springs. So essentially they're equating evangelical Christians trying to maintain their own safe spaces with this mass murder. And we don't even know a motive for this attack. But this spurt of violence has punctuated a wave of rising anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and laws. So people trying to you know, stand up for their own safe spaces, right, for their own religion, for their own communities, for their own way of life. Right? They they are responsible for this spate of you know anti-LGBTQ violence. Right, for a city whose recent history has been sullied by three decades of political attacks on transgender and gay people over spousal benefits, non-discrimination rules, and even the ability to start high school clubs, this felt like a punch in the gut. Okay, so I'm not sure that Colorado Springs history is being sullied by these things. So these are political attacks. Why, why is LGBTQ rights expansion not a political attack on traditionalists and heterosexuals? Right? Why is limiting the ability to start high school clubs and limiting the ability of grooming of kids? So these anti-bullying clubs are usually you know, grooming clubs. Like why is limiting the ability of groomers you know, some spate of hatred? Spousal benefits. Okay, well, someone's got to pay for those benefits. If society doesn't recognize heterosexual marriage as special, then who knows what moral chaos will descend from that? when you just dispense with millennia-old ways of organizing community and families. Right? We've never had a gay marriage before in human history until recently. You think you can just dispense with this and there are no dangers? So the LGBT community says we've made great strides. Right? These great strides become at a tremendous price, right? You would not have had the AIDS explosion. You would not have had the AIDS explosion if not for the expansion of LGBTQ rights. So often expanding rights for a group plays into many of its worst impulses and uh, it's not good for the group. Right? The, the backlash against police and policing since the murder of George Floyd has been really bad for much of the black community led to an explosion of crime, an explosion of murder, explosion of pedestrian deaths and driving deaths as police have pulled back from doing their job 
right? The, the black community has suffered you know, the biggest increases in murder and traffic deaths and pedestrian deaths. Should we purge anyone who makes a living off of victimhood and anything related to it? No, I just think we should try to limit it, limit the, the legal incentives to file you know, victimhood lawsuits. I, I don't think you can have a group identity without a substantial element of victimhood. But we can you know, shift society so that uh, ex public expressions of victimhood aren't rewarded. Right, right now we're rewarding lawsuits of victimhood and public expressions of victimhood and we can discourage that. So victimhood was a key part of group identity in the 1950s, in the 1850s, and the 1750s. Just wasn't encouraged by society. So gay and transgender residents describe Colorado Springs as a difficult place to be out. Some citing recent episodes of discrimination and hate crimes. Well, what about you know, those who have a traditional understanding of life, trying to maintain that? Are they not suffering discrimination? and hate crimes, their traditional way of life is you know, urinated on. So I'm not sure that it's uh, the Jews who've mastered the quintessence of victimhood. I think it's uh, pretty much Jews are taking their cues from blacks, and then blacks are taking their cues from Jews, and LGBTQ community and women are taking their cues from blacks and Jews. So I think everyone's gotten into the, the victimhood game I think the pioneering group were African-Americans. And then Jews took their cues from African-Americans, though Jews also played a substantial role in the black civil rights campaign because they saw it as uh, good, good for the Jews. So did you know that Colorado was once infamous for its anti-LGBTQ laws? Well, these so-called anti-LGBTQ laws simply attempts to maintain freedom of association so that you could hire who you wanted, that you could rent out your property to who you wanted, that you could form the type of community that you wanted. So expansion of rights for, for one group might come at an enormous price for other groups. So Washington Post story from around 1990 says that Colorado Springs has developed a reputation for intolerance and venomous values-based politics. You can't have a safe space without intolerance. Right? Club Q is intolerant of you know, any anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and behavior. Right? So one group trying to maintain its values will inevitably feel like intolerance and you know venomous politics to another group. So focus on the family. It's one of the largest, most influential groups to arrive Colorado Springs. It proposes same-sex marriage and promotes conversion therapy. Widely discredited practice purports to cure gray and transgender people. I don't know, is it really widely discredited? So plenty of therapists and psychiatrists have had success helping people who want to abstain from particular types of sex. Uh, it's not so much a cure, but it's a practical behavioral abstention. Right? They, they want to maintain their place in society. They want to maintain you know, solid family life. And so they want to maintain you know, 
they want to you know, maintain their marriage by avoiding reckless promiscuity and going to bathhouses. It's underneath us always, says a queer study scholar at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs, the military religious organizations. They are cultivating things that may inspire a place like Colorado Springs to be the next target of a mass shooting. Really? Now, we don't even know why this mass shooting took place. We do know that a judge let this guy out and he should be in prison. If we just locked up these super predators and kept them in prison, right, we wouldn't have these mass shootings. But apparently the presence of the military and religious organizations are there just bubbling up underneath the next hate crime. So important political movement came in 1992. Conservative activists rallied in support across the state for a ballot measure known as Amendment 2, which added a clause to the state constitution preventing municipalities from passing gay rights protections. Well, by preventing municipalities from passing gay rights protections means you maintain freedom of association for other groups, right? You maintain safe spaces for evangelical Christians and people who wanted to be selective in who they hired and who they rented to. So this vote was successful, right? The people voted for it. They approved the amendment, even as they voted for Democratic Bill Clinton. Then four years later, the U.S. Supreme Court declared the amendment unconstitutional. So the people voted, democracy spoke, uh, people wanted to maintain freedom of association, but that's all overruled by the courts. Great. Wonderful. People can say what they want, but in the end, the courts will rule. And they'll let you know what is permissible. Look at this wonderful lizard. Looks like a dinosaur, but smaller. Democracy for me, but not for thee. Yeah, remember when we, we passed Proposition 187 in California? Jesus Christ. Is he going to eat me? Why is he approaching me? Do you think he'd, do you think he'd bite me? Is he going to like take a big chunk out of my leg? But we're uh, we're live on uh, YouTube. I don't I don't have any food. He's uh, probably being fed too often by people. I don't think they're poisonous. Sure, I hope not. But come on, mate. So who's who's more scared right now? So there was a there was a bigger one and a smaller one. It's our reptilian overlords. It's the lizard people. And as long as he doesn't come back with the, the bigger version. 
welfare dependent lizards. Snakes pretty nice. It just shows how memory plays tricks with you. I lived on the Upper West Side for four years. I've been to the show countless times, but uh, for some reason, I a little much thought you see the ark. Uh, you see the, uh, the, um, the Bima, it's on the stage there. Uh, I mean, where you dive it, the Bima is right in front of the Arnold Kodesh. For some reason... So the Bima is kind of similar to the pulpit in, in Protestantism. It's where the rabbi speaks, it's where they unroll the Torah scrolls and read aloud from them. It's where the Chazan, the cantor, leads the, the prayers. It's usually in the middle of the synagogue. And it's in front of the Holy Ark, the Aron Kodesh, where they keep the Torah scrolls. Reason I was confusing it in my mind with Rome. Here's what Rome looks like. Uh, you can see it. They moved it down. Um, it used to be that the, the Bima was uh, right in front of the Aron Kodesh, like in the Jewish center, but a number of years ago they moved it uh, so it's in front uh -oh. of uh, the stage, I guess you could call that. Yes, I showed the picture here. But it I just shows you how memory... Like, I've been there every week for the last 10 years. Okay. Well, I was also there. I lived on the Upper West Side, but it showed, it's been over 20 years. And it's just, I want to give you an example of how you always have to check. So I thank you. Because in my mind, I was remembering it as it if like the people was in front of the stage. And it's not. And that's, uh, this is a perfect example of what... Uh, there, we'll see the rebunning we're speaking about uh, when the Bima was moved to the front, uh, which is very church-like. Although, as we'll see, the Kesef Mishnah... So the, the Bima, the pulpit in Judaism, is usually kind of in the center of the synagogue. It's not up front like a, a pulpit. Yeah, the lizard heard the Jewish accent. Immediately associated it with affluence and food. Why is he coming on to me like this? doesn't see a problem with it at all. Uh, that's the first thing I want to mention. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for that effort. Thank you for the questions and the corrections. I always appreciate it. One of those things that bothered me in that school. <laughs> okay, this, uh, I quoted this book last week from Rav David Cohen. If you notice, his name is Cohen, but it's really Khan. He's not a Cohen. But uh, in English, uh, they write it as Cohen. Um, he's, 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 uh, uh, he's a well-known rabbi in, uh, in Flatbush, uh, uh, Posek, and uh, I have to say, when the uh, history of the sexual abuse issue is finally written, he will come out uh, very well, because uh, it does seem like now there's been a change, at least not the elder rabbis, but like the younger generation, younger, like in the 50s, early 60s of the Haredi world, is finally taking it seriously after uh, it's already been a generation, decades. But it needs to be said that um, Rav David Cohen already decades ago was saying that you hear about sexual abuse, you got to go right to the police, and uh, there were people who hated him because of that. And, uh, he, he was, you know, and there people said all sorts of bad things about him, but when the history is finally written, an honest history, how the Orthodox community responded to child abuse. It's going to be very hard to write the honest history because the Aguja circles will not want to let their archives open. And what they did to uh, prevent uh, you know, going to the police 
and uh, things coming out. Rav David Cohen on this issue, uh, say what you will about other issues, on this issue, he, from the beginning, stood up against his own community and uh, was saying to do the right thing. So Yasha Koach to uh, uh, Rav David Cohen. Uh, I mentioned uh, my name last week, Eli Melech, and I just repeated Melech. It's really Melech, not but people call me Eli Melech. It's not so. I repeated the story, the, uh, the thing that everyone says, that the first Eli Melech is Eli Melech of Lejets. And I said, check the Otsar Rabbonim. The Otsar Rabbonim is a book I have here, which um, it's um, 400 pages. It, it says that it lists every rabbi ever in history of any significance. So uh, I looked at it, and uh, it's not exact. There's I count two Eli Melechs, none of whom are at all significant, before Eli Melech of Legenz. So I think you need to say that from Ravelli Melech of Legenz, then the name became popular. Not that it's first. And then I got a, a, an email, I'm also saying that from Mike, and uh, from... Uh, uh, Moshe. Uh, and he actually sends me an article. Uh, here it is. Uh, is that really true? And also it cites some examples from before. But uh, So if we want to be exact, we could say that the name Elinach did exist, but uh, it wasn't uh, popular. In terms of names, someone asked me, uh, what do I have to say about uh, you know non-Jewish names? Uh, we spoke about non-Jewish names as a Jew of emotion about this. We've spoken many times about this, about the names like Tarfon and Papa and even the name Maimon and others. So I don't need to repeat that. Uh, but I, I will say as well. And the lizard is mimicking the behavior observed among hen, henless transient drug addicts loiter long enough like the gives. Maybe, maybe he wants uh, mushrooms. Is this an example of maladaptive survival behavior? Anyone not moving through the area might be there to fatten, fatten his belly. Maybe he sees me as a peer. Man, this lizard is close. Doesn't he realize how dangerous I am? This is what's interesting. Which I, I, I you know, my daughter's name is Yael. I don't think I've ever mentioned this, so I'll say it. For Yaakov Emden states, I even printed it out just so I have for you. Anyone wants to check? It's Biras Migdalos, section Evan Bochen. Uh, page uh, section number 14. He says that Yael, even though she was at Sadegan. Okay, it looks like an Australian water dragon. So, how dangerous are these? Like, is my life at risk here? I don't like the idea of going eyeball to eyeball with a dragon. I watch Game of Thrones. That doesn't usually end up well. Yes. Low high son Israelis. He says that Yael was not Jewish. Israel. So Yael is a character in the early books of the Bible who goes to bed with a, a Gentile general, Sisera, something like that, and uh, kills him in his sleep. She seduces him and then feeds him, and then she kills him. Yeah. Damn, I hope this lizard's been vaccinated. Luke Ford, father of water dragons. I don't know where he gets that. All the other sources assume she was. The whole discussion about Avera Lishma assumes she was. But Rivaka Venden, for reasons I'm not sure if any of you can enlighten me as to why he says this, he doesn't say why. He actually repeats this in his Mikpachat Svarim, which is his attack on the Zohar. He says that Yael, not only is Yael not a Jewish name, Yael was not Jewish. I don't think Jewish is not the best uh, 
term in those days, so it was not uh, Israelite, I guess you could say, because Jewish is from the tribe of Yehuda. But uh, so that's why he says he says Israelite. So I, I find that uh, unusual. And in terms of names, Robbie, thank you for writing to me. I have to. What Robbie says, I knew what Robbie said, but uh, I, I forgot. I never pay attention to it. Robbie's Englishman. I've mentioned many times Cecil. He looks well fed, doesn't he? Look at that enormous belly. Yeah, look how it's like you know, moving in and out with his breath. It's very well fed. So rough. And as any Englishman knows, it's not Cecil, it's Cecil, just like Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes. Uh, so I did know that, but what can I say? As an American, I just keep pronouncing it incorrectly. So I will try... Uh, I will try from now on to call him by his name, uh, Cecil Roth, uh, since that's how he called himself. Uh, although we have plenty of examples of how we refer to people, not exactly how they uh, uh, called themselves. Uh, Hold my hand out like I have food and see if he comes. No, I don't want to be touched by this creature. This creature scares me. Like, who wants to go eyeball to eyeball with a dragon? Oh, oh, Jesus. Is he coming for me? It can move fast when it needs to. The person who pointed out that in Hungarian it's temple for synagogue, uh, I wanted to see if this still continues. So I, we're going to be seeing the Rabbi Oberlander, the Rabbi Budapest, this uh, Wednesday. And he says that although among the younger generation they're now saying synagogue, as they don't want to use her temple, he says his mother. Uh, he's from a, the Papa Hasidic group. She would still, he says, call it. No, I'm pretty sure a visit's not kosher. I just, I just sense he's giving me the evil eye, but I sense that he can see right through me. I sense that, like, he knows who I am. He knows what I've done. He knows the things that I've said, and he's not happy with me. Do you get the sense he's not happy with me? What so I find that very interesting that uh, in Hungary, that was one of the words they used for a synagogue. Oh, I have a few more minutes, so quickly I can say what I wanted to show you. Uh, and then I won't have anything else. This takes us back to uh, last semester um, with um, Ramosha Feinstein and um, reciting Hallel on Pesach night. Lo and behold, I found, Ramosha holds that uh, he's very much against the brisker rod's position. He says, stay in the show. If it's not your minhag, we're going to have this in two months. Uh, stay in, say halal, but don't say it with the brach. The brisker rod we saw, he, he's not into that sort of thing. You don't say, you're not supposed to say halal, don't say halal. Bracha, no bracha, you don't do it because it's uh, just, you don't just do it. So he walk, walk out. It, in this book, the Ma'anel Egrot, the uh, attack on Rav Moshe. I can send anyone a PDF who wants this. You will not find this book at Hebrewbooks.org. You will not find it on Moshe Chachma. There's a boycott against this book, uh, which I think is wrong. It's true. The author is a machutzaf, and uh, he speaks disrespectfully about Rav Moshe, but he makes many good points. It's full of learning. Uh, Rav Yosef quotes it. Every time he quotes it, he says that... Uh, but the author should have spoken with more respect to Ramosha. I understand when the book came out, it's, it looks just like the Ramosha, the same publisher. In fact, when the printer was printing it, he realized what it was, and he called Ramosha, and he said, this is recorded in the biography of Ramosha. 
you know, what should he do? Well, he has a contract and he doesn't want to print it. And Moshe says, you can print it, but, uh, you know, because you lose money otherwise. So he printed it, but none of the foreign stores would carry it. I got my copy from the author himself. Uh, he's no longer alive, but uh, I got my copy. But uh, like I said, there's a boycott, which I think is wrong because it's 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 a part of a, of a Torah history. The, um, there's a lot of learning in it. And uh, if we're going to start censoring, I understand because Ramosha is closer to our time. We knew Ramosha. But at the end of the day, if we're going to start censoring all the books that uh, say disrespectful things, I just mentioned Rebecca Vendon. Forget with Jonas Leibschitz. He says disrespectful things about lots of people. Are we going to start uh, censoring the Torah literature, the Satmarebi? What he says, Roshach, I mean, you, you can't start, I, I don't believe in uh, cancel culture in the Torah world. So, uh, uh, but it's a collector's item, I can tell you that. And uh, I do have a, a PDF of it because some, uh, I think he's probably a Satmar guy made a PDF of it. But on Simon, uh, I am Gimel, he goes against Ramosha. He's always going against Ramosha. Either Ramosha's too lenient or Ramosha's too strict. Ramosha can never get it right. But uh, he has a whole tshuva here saying that, no, there's nothing wrong with saying hello. If, if it's not your minhag. If you're in a show where they say it with a bracha, you go ahead and say it with much of it. This is great. We, we are cleansing our souls in the waters of Torah. Uh, we are refreshing our neshamas, our souls, here in the wellsprings of Torah from the good doctor, historian, Rabbi Mark Shapiro, hanging out at Shelley Beach, looking at a, is this an Australian water dragon? Just giving me the evil eye. He says he has no problem. Uh, this is Rav Yom Tov Halevi Schwartz, uh, the same author of this wonderful book called Eyes to Save. another one. You got a bigger one? In the center of the frame? Much bigger one. Eyes to see. It's the same one who wrote the Monday language, uh, which, as I said, is, is unfortunate. Uh, the middle, the big one in the middle? A very interesting book, uh, nevertheless. Uh, and finally, I think we're going to find it. We also spoke, uh, it was the, the first class, I believe, in this series, about violating Shabbos for uh, non-natural remedies. And, and, um, I think it was Bill mentioned that uh, something about Rafael Heller and the Rav. I found, I, I found it, but then, and also uh, M sent, Moshe sent me also. It's in, in Mipnini Harav, page 81, by Rav Shefter. It tells this great story from Rabbi Reese that uh, once on some or other, Rav was learning with a bunch of students, and uh, the phone uh, rang, and of course, uh, oh, the phone rang, and the Rav gets up, and he goes to the next room. And he picks it up and he starts speaking on the phone, on Yom Tov. And uh, the Rav comes back and he sees the students, of course, they're a little surprised. What's the Rav doing now? The Rav is not like Rabbi Rackin. Rabbi Rackin held that he could talk on the phone on Yom Tov. The Rav didn't hold this. But uh, he told them the story as follows, that uh, in the morning, before he went to sh- uh, before he went to show, the telephone was ringing, just kept ringing, and they wouldn't answer it. After davening, they came back home. In the middle of lunch, uh, a non-Jewish neighbor rings the doorbell, and he tells them that he has a telegram for Soloveitchik. And Soloveitchik says to him, you know, we don't open it, so the man understood where he opened uh, the telegram. And uh, the telegram uh, said, lift up, the answer the phone, hi and help. And what was the story? 
Rechaim Kevler was in Lakewood over Yom Tov, and he became quite ill, and the doctor says he immediately needs to uh, have an operation, and he did not want to have this operation without consulting with Rav Soloveitchik. So the telegram, so Rav Soloveitchik was speaking to Rechaim Kevler, and that was regarded as, I don't know if on Yom Tov, that's the Baruch Nefesh, but it was a serious uh, matter, and that's the story that uh, Bill told. Furthermore, in Negativot um, Olam on uh, page 101, he records, this is Rabbi Shurkin, or Michael Shurkin, also student to the Rav, uh, uh, that the, the, the Vilna Gon held that you, about a certain Sadiq, I guess maybe more than one, you could find that job is to get a bracha from him. And uh, Rav Moshe finds to himself in the Igor Moshe, volume 8, Orachayim, number uh, uh, 16, says that you can write a Kameya on Shabbos if um, if it will, you're worried that without it, the person will die. In other words, if the person uh, feels that he needs, he needs this Kameya, you can do it. And the last thing I'll mention, Rav Nachum Rabinovich, in his Chuvot Siach Nachum, he goes even further. He says that social workers are allowed to travel on Shabbos if there's a terrorist attack, if they could, uh, because the trauma is such, it's the equivalent of a chola sheyeshbo sakana, and he cites the uh, the Rashba, that the Rashba says, uh, to say that you can also write a kameya on Shabbos uh, for a chola sheyeshbo sakana, or for a woman who just gave birth, to uh, calm her. Um, and that was what I suggested, that that could possibly be a permission. Okay, so now I have no other things in my pile until everyone else uh, sends me more stuff. So let's pick up. Let's find here. Uh, we were in the middle, if you remember, about, uh, we we're talking about Israel Jacobson and uh, David Friedland, the reformers. The last thing I was talking about was Israel Jacobson uh, in uh, his synagogue there. And he says as follows, why create a reform service? He says, quote, who would dare deny that our service is sickly because of many useless things? And as you're saying, all this stuff in the prayers that are, are useless. I don't know what he considers useless and what's not. Do uh, you know what type of uh, lizard this is? I'm not sure, but uh, I think he, for him, maybe He's only scary Shema looking. and uh, the reform version of Shema Esri would be uh, valuable. I don't know. And then he goes on, this has degenerated into a thoughtless recitation of prayers and formulae. Yeah. <laughs> He's got me cornered. <laughs> Looks like a dinosaur. Is the blue tone? I don't know. I, he's just scaring me. Just <laughs> <laughs> He looks like 10 million years old. And there's a littler one as well. There's a there's one that's like smaller, like a baby. So maybe this is the father and the mother, and then they've got a baby. You're the grandfather. I'm the grandfather. I'm the grandfather of dragons.
He doesn't look starving either, does he? No. They're, they're well fed. It's giving me the evil eye. Yeah, there's a little They don't seem nervous, do they? Take care. Bye. It's not bad being the father of dragons. What should we name this bloke? I presume this is the Sheila. And this is the bloke. I think that uh, Mark Shapiro's teachings have, have a uh, calming effect on them. That it kills devotion more than it encourages it, and that it limits our religious principles to that fund of knowledge which for centuries has remained in our treasure house without increase and without ennoblement. So he says it kills devotion, it's a faultless recitation of prayers and formulae. Now this is something obviously the Orthodox struggle with as well. No one can deny that people, uh, you know, as I said, it's the routinization. So the Orthodox, they'll have to do their own way of trying to make it the... We, we don't cut things out unless they're like matters that are not really essential to the dolphin. I'm in his territory where he keeps his females. No, uh, uh, a dragon. <laughs> yeah, and there's a there's a little one. I'm wondering if this is the father, mother, and baby. They're very brave, eh? They're not scared of us. Yeah. They they look well fed. You know, they're not starving, are they? They eat well. I think that neck blows out when he needs to. I don't know why he can make it make himself look really scary with it. Don't they look like dinosaurs? Yeah, like many dinosaurs. Yeah, like a relic from the past. Oh, jeez. I hope they're not poisonous. <laughs> I hope I'm still here when you come back. What do you want, mate? Am I on your territory, buddy? Uh, but uh, the thing with the reformers
numbers is they often had a good diagnosis of what was going on. You know, their solutions were also were the problems. But of course, there's a diagnosis that uh, that the people find certain aspects of the service long and boring. And we've made changes when hopefully uh, good. I've said it numerous times. Just look at the dish above that you have today and compare that to when we were growing up. Where I'd sit and show for as a youngster, hours and hours listening to keynotes. What's a guy? What's a twelve or thirteen year old? So now we've made changes. So, but that's uh, you know there's halakhic principles as well. But uh, the reformers are not so concerned about that. Uh, and then he says uh, that these prayers have remained oh, in our boy. treasure houses without increase or ennoblement. That is, we have to change the prayers because uh, we can't recite prayers the same way they've been recited for a thousand years, two thousand years. Uh, we need some changes. Now, I just want to take back a bit what I said that in terms of, uh, you know, make it seem as only the reformers because there's a video of an interview. There's a guy who deals with high school kids. I can find him. I forget his name. And he interviews with Herschel Schechter. And he says that in a lot of our high schools, the kids come in and they don't want to go. You know, they don't come from such religious homes, or they're teenagers. Teenagers, you know, they're, they're not so into it often. So Rav Schechter says to him, so then they don't have to go in all this. And I don't know if the person was a little surprised. He says, so what should they do? So Schechter says, he says, okay, he says, cut out this because of the Sukkot Zimmer. I think he says, do Roshava, and then go to Ashray, and then he says, then go to Gregor's Kriachra. In other words, he cuts out. So it's like a 15-minute or even less, 10-minute davening. And this is not some reformer. This is what Shabbat saying. For these kids, it's better to say a few things with Kavana than to have them sit there the whole time so they're born out of their minds. So by the time they get to the Shema, they're still thinking of uh, the sports game from the night before as they've been thinking for the last 10 minutes. So, so this is, you know, the post saying for Shabbat saying that, uh, you know, for those people, we're not talking about a show. The other show is problematic. Yet, but for the high school kids and... Uh, I didn't know. I wish I now, did. Komodo dragon. Yes. Okay. Are they um, poisonous? <laughs> no, but they have sharp claws. So if they run towards you, you lie in the ground because then they'll just go over you. They won't try and crawl up. And there's poison in the claws. Poison in the claws. Great. Yeah. Great. I can't wait. Okay. So, you better don't get between the two of them. <laughs> I don't think I want to come between them. Where are you from? Uh, originally here, but California, okay. mainly.
Komodo dragon. It's not a Komodo dragon. Water dragon, beauty dragon. Don't look forward to them getting their, their claws on me. Yeah, a single dragon can ruin your whole day. There they go. Just a frilled neck lizard. And the Agama family, you can tell by the head. Don't they look like dinosaurs? Wonder what they've come to know what they've come to teach us. Maybe they have a message. Judaism in recent years, but from uh, Jacobson's point, nothing is new. Everything just comes out of the same old sources. And since we're living in a different era, as we'll see, we need entirely new conceptions. And if, you know, if we're bound to Jewish law, then there's going to be limits to what we can do. So people like Jacobson aren't going to be happy. Now, Jacobson also was concerned with fitting in. Remember, at the synagogue, uh, the first, the inauguration was full of non-Jews. They too joined into the, uh, the singing and everything. I can tell you that at the inauguration of uh, the show that I go to, there were also non-Jews at the inauguration. The mayor was there, the assembly people, and uh, they didn't speak, but they sat, uh, actually I should say that the mayor spoke, I should say. But the rest of them just sat there. I remember the mayor spoke, he, he spoke very ecumenical. So Australian Eastern Water Dragon? Is that the consensus? Is that the science? I want to fit in with the science here about all our houses of worship and everything, and very nice. Um, but we didn't have psalms or hymns that we sang together with them. But Jacobson says as follows. He says that parts of the Jewish prayer service and the rituals are offensive to reason. That is, they offend us. So we say things that we don't accept, we don't believe in. And then he says as well, also to our Christian friends. So Mark Shapiro is this great scholar a great academic and I was taken aback when I listened to one of his lectures where he talked about how he's kind of offended that there was this reformed Jewish day school named after Rashi. And he didn't think that Rashi was a good representative of reformed Judaism but Rashi was a 12th, 13th century Jewish commentator, wrote commentaries on, on the Talmud and on the, the Torah. But I think it all depends on where you're coming from. Like Mark Shapiro has been modern orthodox his whole life. So from his modern orthodox perspective, 
Rashi is not a good representative of Reform Judaism, but if you believe that Reform Judaism is true, you can certainly look at Rashi's life and say, oh yeah, it does, that does kind of reflect Reform Judaism. So it's kind of taken aback when Mark said he was offended by the idea of a, of a Reform Jewish day school named, you know, the Rashi School. I am 56 years of age. I've never been offended in my life, so the name of the school is not going to offend me. So this is going to be driving reform also, that uh, they need to fit in, not just in their understanding of what it means to be a modern person, but they don't want to do things that non-Jews will look at and say, well, uh, that's uh, retrograde or that's backwards. Uh, later, in his speech at the inauguration, speaking to the Christians, he says, quote, there is nothing in this, this, this new temple that in any way contradicts the principles of pure religion, of the demands of general morality, of reason. Of okay, so pure religion according to whom? So this is 19th century Germany, which is largely uh, Protestant, right? So Protestantism is a religion of the heart, a religion of, of creed, of dogma, of theology, of faith. Right, so pure religion from a Protestant perspective is faith. But uh, pure religion from a Catholic or a Jewish perspective, it is behavior, it is ritual, it is community. Of a your humanitarian attitude. Of course, we today, in 2022, we would never say to the non-Jews, if the you know, dedication of our shul, there's nothing that we're doing here that's in opposition to your humanitarianism. And we wouldn't feel the need to say that everything we're doing here is in accord with uh, pure religion, with general morality. That We assume that everyone knows that synagogues were interested in morality. But you see that in the early part of the 19th century, he needs to stress that we're not different than you. We too are moral and we're not this synagogue unlike those other synagogues as a synagogue where uh, a Christian can come and feel brotherhood with the Jews because we all uh, are worshipping the one true God. You want So, right, you want to join forces with you know, some other group or emphasize that you're not a threat to some other group when you're in the inferior position but when you feel safe and secure then you have less desire to you know, form bonds and assure them that you know, you're not a threat. So and Jews were very much the minority in, in Germany and felt concerned and afraid. Yeah, they wanted to make the argument that they weren't a threat. But in the United States, you know, Jews feel secure and safe and powerful, and uh, they don't feel the same need to placate you know, Christians that they did in 19th century Germany. It's like uh, the war between religion and science. Now, religious leaders are very intent on saying there's no contradiction between religion and science. That's because science has won all those battles. And so this is a way for religious leaders to you know, give up the fight that they were losing. You won't find in this synagogue any of that orthodox mumbo-jumbo and superstition. I do want to add, however, that many people are probably thinking when you hear this, that's so reformed, be concerned with the value. Always what the Bayim have to say. And we're going to modify our service and we're going to change our practices because of the Bayim. And I have to say that uh, there is a lot of truth to that feeling, but it's not complete without pointing out that we have plenty of examples where Orthodox or Torah leaders, because I don't want to use the word Orthodox, I'm speaking about, let's say, in medieval times, they're not Orthodox. There's no such thing as Orthodoxy yet. We haven't even got to Orthodoxy. Maybe with the Hasim Sofer, we'll start seeing Orthodoxy, right? We just have Torah Judaism and Reform Judaism. Um, 
traditional Torah Judaism and, and Reform Judaism, because we have a number of examples, I'll just give you some of them now, where post Torah leaders have said that because of how things look to the Goyim, we should not do it. And uh, let me give you a few examples. Uh, I should have asked Rabbi Desaini about this uh, a couple weeks ago, the Chief Rabbi of Rome. Uh, in Rome, uh, before the mid-19th century, one of the practices they used to do was they would drag the coffin of uh, rabbis, only rabbis, uh, they would drag the coffin, and this was thought to be a form of penitence. This is based on the idea that uh, Chizkiyahu, uh, to give penance to his wicked father, dragged his father's bones. So they would drag uh, the coffin, and uh, this is something that's created problems because the non-Jews look at this. This is, uh, oh, they made, and then they dumped it into the, they didn't let it down nicely into the grave. They'd actually push it in. And this was like skill. Okay, so when when that awful day comes that I will pass on from this world, maybe don't want you to drag my body through the streets, right? So don't treat me like a great rabbi. No, I'll be fine with just a traditional service. This was like uh, the, uh, the punishment of uh, stoning. You throw someone off a uh, uh, high roof or something. And in fact, it's, I think even Rome would do all four, all four types of um, punishments uh, after their death. There was a whole uh, formula they did as a form of penitence. Now, this created uh, negative feelings among the non-Jewish Romans. Can you imagine they see the people dragging... Uh, the coffin uh, through the streets. Okay, so now that I've converted to Judaism, I've largely forgotten how the non-Jew thinks. Would, would you be offended if you saw a bunch of Jews like dragging a dead body or a coffin of some revered leader, you know, through the streets? But would that bother you? Yes, however, was that this was only done for the sages. I mean, only did it every like 40, 50 years, once. So it wasn't such a, a big deal. Uh, uh, but uh, nevertheless, it was mocked during the carnival performances in Rome. And uh, uh, in fact, for over 200 years, the Jews of Rome asked the various popes to uh, forbid the performances where they used to mock the Jewish funeral practices. And it was, uh, it was finally abolished by the Jews in the 19th century because they had a rabbi there. He was the rabbi of Rome. He wasn't from Rome. He was from Eretz Israel. He came to Rome. His name was Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan. Uh, he wrote a volume of Chuvot, a very interesting volume called the Krachshel Romi. Rabbi uh, Professor Jose Faur has a whole book on uh, Yisrael Moshe Chazan, a very fascinating figure. Well, if you look at his responsa, number uh, 13, he talks about how, contrary to what the general Minhag was, a simple person, uh, Chazan calls him Pashud Echad, a simple person, said he also wanted to be given the, uh, the Dalad Misos based it. He also wanted to be given the four mito and uh, to be dragged. You know, I have to look in the chuva. I, I, as I remember, you drag in the coffin. You have to drag by yourself. <laughs> I want to look though, because now I'm thinking of it. That would be even worse if you actually drag the body. But I, uh, I, I'm pretty certain that uh, that's my recollection. Uh, that it's they drag the coffin, not the, not the body, because uh, um, they do bury coffins in Rome. Uh, uh, now this is again going to be a problem. You're going to drag him and drag him into through this, to the cemetery, which goes to the non-Jewish neighborhoods. And uh, Rabbi Shlomo Shachazan says, when we did it with the big rabbis, it was a very uncommon thing. But now, so on Purim, which comes from the Book of Esther, 
Like in some Jewish communities, they, they hang up effigies of Haman and his sons. And so a lot of the, the non-Jews don't appreciate, you know, the hanging of, of effigies in their neighborhood. Well, you have simple people want to do this. And that's going to create a mockery for Judaism. We now have good relations with the Christians. Can you imagine what that's going to do when they see us dragging uh, you know, dead people through the streets? It's going to make us, he says, seem like barbarians in their eyes. And therefore, he abolishes it. Is this a valid concern? Are we supposed to alter our practices because of the non-Jews? Uh, we don't stop doing mitzvot because of the non-Jews, but there are other sources I found similarly. Right, there never gets to be a time when you can just you know, ignore how your behavior is going to be received by other people. Right? You can never be so secure, so successful, so strong, so happy. You can just be completely oblivious to how outsiders view what you're doing. Right? So if you form any sort of connections with a group, it's going to take on you know, some court-like behaviors. So the way to transcend this is to keep, yeah, one foot in your group, but also consider how things look you know, for an outsider. And so here's, here's, the, here's the baby. Another lizard on the run. Another dragon in the making. And this place is just teeming with them. So that's pretty rare that you have to take your shoes off to enter a synagogue, right? That's I, I've never encountered that. And, and, and when you come as a tourist, you have to take your shoes off too. So the whole show for now, for thousands of years, you've been taking your shoes off there. So it is. A, it's not a. Um, I think it's Rafael Kanievsky actually. He was asked about the practice of taking your shoes off, and he says it's uh, like from the Goyim. But it's not. They, we have it in Morocco, we know that they used to do it. Well, maybe originally it's from the Goyim, but I mean, it's been a Jewish practice for so long that it's a valid Jewish practice. So, uh, but he was asked about this, the Rashbash. Uh, 
Now, there was a shul where some people insisted on taking their shoes off, and other people said, no, you can't take your shoes off because uh, this is, again, you're you're imitating uh, the God. I got my neck on this thing. You beauty. And what does the Rashbash say? And this is how uh, he's, there's a few different directions. And now we get to see both, uh, both lizards in the frame. major major poski he says you should take off your shoes and he says precisely by taking off your shoes you'll gain respect by the non-jews because for the muslims the idea of going to your house of worship and not taking off your shoes was a sign of disrespect so okay so if we take off our shoes at synagogue will that that gain more respect from the non-jews asking for a friend it's not like taking off your shoes is against halacha. There's good reasons to take off your shoes, you could argue. And therefore, now you can never imagine a Christian, a post and Christian event saying this, take off your shoes. They would see this as completely disrespectful, take off your shoes. Take off your shoes when you go to Shola, that's 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 the height of disrespect. Uh, but in the Muslim world, on the contrary, you have to have a good reason not to take off your shoes, because in that world, it was thought to be respectful to take your shoes off. Uh, you know that your Rambam says that uh, before davening, you're supposed to wash your feet? And uh, the Raivad on the spot there, Thomas Fiwa says, what's going on here? What would you wash your feet? He doesn't, uh, so it, it's, a, it, it's a very different understanding. The Rambam has a famous example. Take a look in the Chumas Rambam, number, uh, the Blau edition, number 258. That's the Chuva where he deals with the practice of no Chazar Sashas. And this continues in certain Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, uh, they don't do this on Shabbos and Musaf. Uh, you read it together, that is, you start at the Shmonasriya and Musaf. Only Musaf, as I recall, they do this out loud, and then you get to Kedusha, and then everyone continue on your own. But they go to Hecha Kedusha. Yeshivas do it sometimes. This was standard in Morocco. Okay, I think that'll do it for now. Bye bye. G'day, mate, 40 here. So this is the Australian water dragon. Large dragons will appear confident or friendly. Watch out. Oh. There we go. Ahead. They'll appear confident or friendly. They should not be approached as they have very sharp claws. They can deliver a serious bite. They're a protected species in Australia. They're not allowed to be collected. They get eaten by brown tree snakes, which hunt for them in the tree branches as they sleep. So they tend to mate in warm weather in spring, which is now. Right, the breeding season begins in September. Right. 
males are thought to be sexually mature at 210 millimeters, approximately five years of age. Males of similar size will fight each other when confronted. Male will first attempt to deter his opponent through intimidation by walking tall and puffing out the throat with the mouth open wide. They will try to appear as large as possible. So he's trying to intimidate me right now. If this does not deter the opponent, then ritual combat will result. Male combat includes both animals siding up to each other on the ground so that each animal has its head next to the opponent's hip. Both animals will circle each other while taking short bites at each other's hip and neck regions. They repeat this over and over. They get wounds from the biting and scratching. These fights can last for up to 10 minutes. Females can reproduce twice a season. They hibernate in winter. They communicate through dominant and submissive signals, including head bobbing, saluting, and substrate licking. So the water dragon is more often heard rather than seen as it dives into the water when disturbed. It remains submerged for an hour. They forage underwater. They eat plants as juveniles, but as they grow, they become more omnivorous with vegetable matter making up half of their diet. So they feed on insects such as ants as they grow up, as well as cicadas, mollusks, crustaceans such as yabbles, algae, crabs, mosquitoes, and they eat figs, lily, pili fruits, and other fruits and flowers. They're usually active from September to June. And to survive during the low winter temperatures, they enter established burrows, scrape their own between boulders and logs, pack dirt into the opening to seal themselves off. Once in tune, they will slow their metabolism and enter a state essentially hibernation until spring arrives. They are found in eastern Australia and southern New Guinea. From tropical rainforests to alpine streams. Very plentiful in Sydney. To listen to some good old Mark Shapiro rise of reform and the rabbinic response in 19th century Germany? Uh, today, uh, it's not so common, although uh, often on trips and things, you do it in uh, interest of time, but uh, the Rambam defended this practice. Of taking and, off uh, your shoes when you go to shul. A lot of people know why he defended these things. A lot of uh, talking. He doesn't just say that Torah is talking, by the way. He also says, um, uh, he says, uh, the Jews are spitting also. You know, they're just acting, uh, you know, they're, they're showing their disrespect. Uh, uh, but then he says, uh, so that, that, that's what people of, often uh, quote. But he says as follows. He says, by getting rid of the Hazar Sashats, that's the repetition of the that, main prayer. He says, he says that uh, this creates a Hazar 
So Hillel Hashem means the desecration of God's name. It's the worst thing a Jew can do. So the Jews, not behaving properly in Shul, creates a Hillel Hashem for the Goyim, and therefore the Rambam says, that's a good reason. I don't know if... So, etiquette. You know, there's, not, there's no like Hebrew word for etiquette. And so... The word, Hebrew word for synagogue, Beit Knesset, means meeting place. So it's not, you know, an otherworldly place like a Christian sanctuary. And so when you become incredibly comfortable at a place, then it's uh, more difficult for your behavior to be otherworldly. Right? When you're this worldly religion, you're not going to necessarily achieve the spirituality of you know, a worldly religion. Good old Mark Shapiro just has a way of putting his finger on it. So a drasha is a talk. So it's uh, loosely translated, you know, a sermon. His name was Hevesy. He's the grandfather of Alan Hevesy, who uh, was city controller of New York, intermarried at the time of the big house, unfortunately. But uh, his grandfather was the Neil Long, uh, chief rabbi, the uh, chief rabbi of, uh, of uh, Budapest. And when I say Neil, it's a shomer shomer, it's a shomer shomer, it's a shomer shomer, it's Oh, so for instance, I can see some of the romantic inscriptions adorning the building, in addition to the evil ones, there's a organ in the synagogue. I'm assuming a non-Jew might be working on the Bible, but the evidence later on was in the Bible, and women sat in the balcony. So this says, the first reform synagogue, the Jacobson season, and women are sitting in the balcony. Women, I've said it before, let's see how many remember, what is the first synagogue in Jewish history, world history, that men and women sit together? Who's going to type it in? I'll keep talking and see who can type it in. And I'll give you a hint. Nah, they're Rabbi Kelvin. <laughs> So Australia, more than any other first world nation of which I'm aware, tends to sexually segregate. You know, blokes go up with blokes, she does with Sheila's. But uh, Judaism has always been heavily sexually segregated until the rise of Reform Judaism in 19th century Germany. So it was in Germany that for the first time you had men and women sitting together at prayer. Wait, so I was wrong. It was Isaac Mayer Weiss, a reform rabbi in America, who developed the synagogue where men and women sat together at prayer. So that's 19th century America. So that innovation happened in the United States, not in Germany. And in some cases, the women came down from Germany, 
this becomes such a central thing. We get to have one of the before. So told me anything going on. I don't want to sign up. You can't even step foot into a synagogue if the name is not in the middle. And we'll see what Russia Feinstein has to say about that today. Now, we have an eyewitness report of the opening of the temple in Zisa in 1810. And you can find this eyewitness report. Gunter Pound has two volumes of prime texts, uh, primary texts on the reform movement. One focus on America, the other focus on Europe. And if you look in there, you can uh, print it out. Talks about how, first of all, with the dedication of the temple, the, the eyewitness reports that Christians who are in attendance, nothing wrong with that, but they join in the singing. And it ends on a universalistic theme. Here's this. The festivities were original and unique. Where would one have seen a similar day at which Jews and Christians celebrated together in a common service in the presence of more than 40 clergymen of both religions and then sat down to eat and rejoice together in intimate company, assuming that what they were eating wasn't like kosher? Jacobson says as follows It's not been my intent to bring about a religious unification. What is this babble? This is Dr. Mark Shapiro talking about the rise of Reform Judaism and the rabbinic response. Babel, this is Mark Shapiro, this, this great scholar. Babel, you kidder. You kidder. How you kid, Glenn Medley? He says that I don't want a unification of religions. And in Paul's introduction, he cites this as proof that, uh, that Jacobson was not interested in religious assimilation. But if you look at his next words, that is Jacobson's next words, after saying that it's not my intent to bring about a complete religious unification or religious, he says, one accomplishes nothing at all if one desires everything or too much at one time. What is needed is gradual and slow development. So, I, I, I'm reading it, he seems to be saying that religious unification is, is not ipso facto wrong. But in today's day and age, it's not something we can do, but in the future, this could be a goal. Because when the Christians get rid of their belief in Jesus, you know, then we can all be worshipping the divine together. When I will pick up... So, yeah, the founders of Reformed Judaism thought that they created a universal religion that would supplant Christianity. They thought, you know, Christians will drop the, the Jesus thing and uh, will all, you know, worship the one true God, practicing you know, true, true religion. Glum Medley is just jealous of the, you know, the, the wit and wisdom of Mark Shapiro here. With next class, I see it's already just about 9.30, is Jacobson's going to tell us what he, what's driving him. And then we're going to get into a very interesting tangent because Jacobson is going to make the argument that it's vital that our religious service not be disgraceful, not for us only, but in the eyes of our neighbors. And I think most people today, if you told us, they'd say, the idea that we're going to determine what our social service looks like based on what I think that's, uh, that's not a normal way of looking at it. That's, that's a possible before way of looking at it. And you will see, I'm going to say, to be showing them a home, you will later not say the exact same thing. They're saying, yeah, there never, there never comes a time when you can just be oblivious to how your neighbors perceive what you're doing, particularly when you're a tiny minority. So Jews have always had to pay attention to what the non-Jews think. Right? This idea of, you know, we don't care what the Goyim think, right? that's not realistic. Any normal, healthy person has to care about how other people perceive what they're saying and doing. Has to be, cannot be a Chil Hashem. The very concept of a synagogue service can be a Chil Hashem in the eyes of the Goyim. And then we'll move on to, uh, uh, well, Freelander, uh, well, lots of good stuff uh, coming up. Well, let me take the, let me make a note here. Let me take the questions, lots of questions. Uh, someone asked privately, last week I spoke about maybe permitted for co but a funeral of a non-Jew. Sometimes a person could have been Jewish, but may not have been aware of it, someone says. Yeah, it's possible, uh, but uh, generally we don't make that assumption. Uh, the Gemara obviously deals with that. Someone could be descended from the, the 12 tribes, the 10 tribes. Uh, you can always have a suffix, but uh, unless you know otherwise, if you know that someone's a Christian, you know, uh, you can assume that. Uh, after all, we, we do much more important things than going to funerals. Maybe non-Jews as a Shabbos going. And, uh, uh, and there have been some cases. There was a case in uh, in Israel, supposedly, where the Shabbos guy turns out he was Russian. Turns out he was actually Jewish. Uh, they thought he wasn't Jewish. But uh, they, they have crazy cases like that. But generally, we have a concept of Shabbos guy, and we don't worry that maybe uh, four generations ago uh, his maternal grandmother was Jewish. 
So the Shabbos Goy is a non-Jew who does things for the Jew on the Sabbath that the Jew's not allowed to do. So the problem with having a Shabbos Goy is it makes Judaism look stupid. It makes Jewish law look stupid. It makes Jews look like they're you know, just trying to get around God's law.
the Gedolim refers to the great rabbis. The rabbis are going to say, you can't. How can you say you can't when the Rambam is explicit to feel the and the Gemara, etc.? Uh, Ellie says that her, my kids live in Berlin, and Kira for Louder started a new community based on all the wonderful ways of Berlin. Uh, I don't know if that's related. I think you're, well, that's related to what you're referring to is the, the Rabbiner Seminar, the Atas Israel there in, um, in Berlin. We, on our trip there, we ate there, and I've been there uh, a few different times, and that is the, the, the community. There's a Chabad community for Betechtal, but the non Chabad, it's a community. We were there, we saw the, the nursery. Uh, there's lots of little kids, little kids playing, speaking German, but this is a Shomer Shabbos community of young people and you know, working people, and there's people, not just Yeshivish people, but regular people, and it's a very, very nice uh, community, and yes, you can uh, please make the connection to your son-in-law, I'd love to, because uh, when I go to, back to Germany, I'll be uh, traveling around again, uh, and, uh, he's official rabbi of the German state, I assume he's a Muslim of the Rabbiner Seminar, when we go on our Germany trip, we also uh, eat with one of the rabbis who, who come from there. Yes, um, He's, 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 he's the second graduating class. Oh, so very good. Um, so, so I should now, since the term Orthodoxy came from reform, used for them as a characterization against traditionalists, my respect term. That's what her sense, that it was a uh, negative term, used a term. We'll get to that. Uh, but it's been accepted. It's not the only such term. Uh, I've said it already in the past. The term Islamdin was a term of, used by the Hasidim, and yet the Hasidim were uh, used against the non-Hasidim. But... So, yeah, Orthodox was a term of derision that reform Jews used for the traditionalists. Uh, eventually, the Orthodox uh, came to adopt it. It's like the Mitnagdim, the opponents of Hasidim, right? They were called by the Hasidim, the Mitnagdim, meaning opponents, and eventually they came to embrace this term of derision. Now, just like uh, queer, that used to be a pejorative term for homosexuals, and they've come to embrace it. Bye-bye. G'day, Mate. G'day, mate. Forty here. So I've been listening to a New Yorker essay just to Samuel Alito's crusade against a secular America by Margaret Talbot. And uh, one of her critiques of Justice Alito is that he quoted from James Taylor's song, Fire and Rain, without understanding that the meaning of the song was about James Taylor's fight with addiction. So she's an originalist. She believes that musical lyrics can only be understood in alignment with the original intention of the writer. They, they can't have any further or additional meanings. So in, in that area, she's quite conservative. Right? She's quite the textual originalist. But uh, when it comes to the Constitution, like she's all for the, you know, the most, the, the most you know, liberal change with the times. Uh, meanings, you know, possible. So, if I keep my, my hat on here. Okay. So, let's listen to some of the New Yorker article here. Alright, I'm trying to produce a high quality production here. Okay, there we go. Profiles. Published in the print issue of the New Yorker with the headline, The Last Word. Justice Samuel Alito's crusade against a secular America is over. Written by Margaret Talbot. Narrated by Kirsten Potter. Some baby boomers were permanently shaped by their participation in the countercultural protests and the anti-war... So I don't get tired of hanging out to the Sydney Opera House. I don't get tired of Sydney, not yet anyway. I don't get tired of Sydney Harbour. I don't get tired of Manly. Manly four times in the last week. I'm tired of just sitting here by the dock of the bay, 
get tired of live streaming. I get tired of critiquing New Yorker articles. Or activism of the 1960s and 70s. Others were shaped by their aversion to those movements. Justice Samuel Alito belongs to the latter category. For many years, he lacked the power to do much about that profound distaste. And in any case, he had a reputation for keeping his head down. When President George W. Bush nominated Alito to the Supreme Court in 2005, many journalists portrayed him as a conservative, but not an ideologue. The Times noted that legal scholars characterized his jurisprudence as cautious and respectful of precedent. Sketched portraits. Okay, so we're all cautious. We're all respectful when we have to be. Right, but when we feel powerful and confident and strong and safe, we all tend to be less cautious and less respectful. Now, you may be shocked that uh, Samuel Alito was cautious and respectful when he had to be, but when the situation changed and conservatives now have six votes on the U.S. Supreme Court, right, upper house, okay, the, the 40 bunker, right, this is where I'm going to bunker down if there's a nuclear holocaust and it's going to hide under the Sydney upper house. But, uh, yeah, we're all cautious and respectful when we have to be. And uh, we all tend to be more rambunctious and off the hook and unhinged when it's safe to be that. Right? When the situation changes, we change. Ah, bell in the house, bro. So excited to have you along for the ride. It is 6.08 p.m. Wednesday evening here in Some Sydney. quiet, methodical, reasonable man. On the court, even as Alito's opinions aligned consistently with the goals of the Republican Party, in particular of social conservatives, admirers praised him as pragmatic and Burkean. According to a 2018 C-SPAN PSB poll, he was the conservative justice the fewest Americans could name. And for years, he was overshadowed by his more flamboyant late colleague Antonin Scalia, by Clarence Thomas, whose notorious confirmation hearings were followed by a rivetingly long silence on the bench, even by Neil Gorsuch with his cussed libertarian streak. Richard Lazarus, a professor at Harvard Law School who has studied the court, told me that in Alito's first years as a justice, he was known primarily as Chief Justice John Roberts' right-hand man, Someone the chief could assign to write an opinion that would not be too flashy or provocative. Okay, so I, when I'm in jobs where I'm not secure, I tend to abstain from being flashy and provocative as well. Time brag. I'm ahead of you guys. I am living in the future. You're probably wondering right now, what is Wednesday evening going to be like? Is it going to be safe? Is it going to be cool? Is it going to be fun? Well, I can tell you what Wednesday evening is going to be like. I am living in your future, right? When, when uh, 1999 turned into 2000 and we were afraid of, uh, of uh, you know, Y2K, all right, Australia pretty much went first and it was awesome, right? Australia ushered in the new millennium and it was awesome and it was safe. And so I'm here to report back to you from the future Everything's going to be A-OK. -okay. But I'm just a vessel. Right, so come on, don't you identify that we all tend to be cautious and respectful right, when we need to be? And then when, you, when you're first uh, trying to impress a woman, and then when you have her under your thrall, right, you tend to be a little more rambunctious. 
little more off the hook. I, I don't think I'm the only one who, who changes when the situation changes. And that would keep five votes together when he couldn't trust Scalia to do it, because Scalia would swing for the fences and risk losing votes. Now, though, Alito is the embodiment of a conservative majority that is ambitious and extreme. extreme. He declined to be interviewed for this article. Oh, no. With the recent additions of Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett to the court, the conservative bloc no longer needs Roberts to get results. And Alito has taken a zealous lead in reversing the progressive gains of the 60s and early 70s, from overturning Roe v. Wade to stripping away voting rights. At a Yale Law School forum in 2014, he was asked to name a personality trait that had impeded his career. Alito responded that he'd held his tongue too often, that it probably would have been better if I said a bit more at various times. He's holding his tongue no longer. Indeed, Alito now seems to be saying whatever he wants in public, often with a snide pugnaciousness that suggests his past decorum was suppressing considerable resentment. Well, I think for, for most of us, our past decorum says considerable resentment. I hardly made any videos between 2012 and 2015. I lacked confidence. I just didn't really want to be seen. And notice those people on top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge just under the... Under the, I don't know, no, I don't think I can zoom in, but uh, they're just under the flags there. You can, you can uh, go up there on a walk, but too expensive. So I don't like to spend money. The only things I spend money on, gratuitously on this trip, are ice creams and smoothies. So if I'm going to walk 10 miles, then, then you know, 15 miles, then I deserve an ice cream. I deserve a smoothie. So plunk down ten dollars for an ice cream or a smoothie. Sunday, right? Just seven dollars American, no worries. I'll, I'll do that. But other than that, like taking the big Sydney bus, right, fifty dollars for for a day trip for a guided tour of Sydney. No, I'm not going to do it. But I'll take the ferry, right? You can take the ferry pretty much anywhere in Sydney Harbour. A round trip costs you less than uh, six dollars American. No worries, mate. Last term, Alito landed the reputation-defining assignment of writing the majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which eliminated the constitutional right to abortion enshrined by Roe nearly 50 years ago. In May, a draft of his opinion was leaked, and from start to finish, it sounded cantankerous and dismissive. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, Alito declared. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. He likened Roe to Plessy v. Ferguson, the notorious decision upholding segregation, approvingly cited centuries old. So also people, as they get older, it's not uh, unusual they become more forthright, uh, less careful, they don't weigh their words as much, uh, they start speaking out more. They usually tend to feel more confident. They tend to might be more agreeable in many ways, but uh, if it's important to them, they'll just speak out. So I don't think that uh, Samuel Alito's journey is, is that unusual. Old common law categorizing a woman who received an abortion after quickening as a murderess and used the inflammatory word personhood when... 
Wait, 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 wait. Why is personhood so inflammatory when it is applied to the fetus? Why is that inflammatory? So here we get down to a fundamental difference between the left and the right in their understanding of the self. So for the left, the self is buffered, it is strategic, it is autonomous. And for the right, the self is porous, right? There isn't just a clinical state of fetus. The fetus is a human being in the process of becoming a human being, right? And so we're not just autonomous, right? It's not just a fetus and that's all it is. From, from a traditional perspective, you know, the fetus is not just a separate state. The fetus is the human being in process to more full realization. I'm describing fetal life. It was hardly... Right, she, <laughs> she regards it as inflammatory to ascribe personhood to the fetus. Right, from a traditional perspective, you know, or common sense perspective, we never talk about the fetus when it's going to be maintained. When we meet a pregnant woman, a friend, we don't say, how's the fetus? We say, how's the baby? That we recognize that this is a human being in the process of becoming a human being. Right? We don't go, how's your fetal life? Is your fetal life acting up today? Back to the New Yorker. Sam Alito's ...that Alito would be assigned the Dobbs opinion. Joan Biskupic, a CNN analyst and the author of a biography of Chief Justice Roberts, has reported that Roberts privately lobbied fellow conservatives to save the constitutional right to abortion down to the bitter end. Roberts wanted to validate the particular restriction at issue in Dobbs, a Mississippi ban on virtually all abortions after 15 weeks, but he opposed a wholesale rejection of Roe, which, among other things, had strengthened the notion that a right to privacy was implicit in the Constitution. If Roberts had successfully enlisted, say, the occasionally more... Okay, so this right to privacy implicit in the Constitution is absolutely bizarre. It's entirely eisegesis, reading a meaning into the text. It's not exegesis, deducing a meaning from the text. Right? There's no right to privacy in, in the U.S. Constitution. There's not much of a right to privacy in, in Torah law. There's no right to privacy in Roman Catholic law or Christian law or New Testament or Church Fathers, or Martin Luther, or John Calvin. Like, this right to privacy is a left-wing consideration, right? Coming from a belief that the self is autonomous and buffered, and uh, therefore, you know, what the autonomous self does in private is none of the business of people around it. But everything we do affects us and affects other people. And what you do in private affects other people. There were millennial woes in 1999. He bitterly mentioned Ford's coverage of his failings. Big win, not likely woes, follows advice to improve. Yeah, millennial woes, like, nice bloke, right? There's no nastiness, bitterness in millennial woes. He's not someone, you know, looking to feud, uh, not looking to, generally speaking, score cheap points. But he is in a downward spiral and doesn't want to emerge from his downward spiral. So he's very good at articulating his depression and he's very good at articulating his failures and at articulating his conspiratorial worldview. And there's a tremendous audience 
for what he has to, to paddle, right? So he you know, tells young men, you have you know every right to feel victimized. You know you are victimized. It's not your fault that you're living in your parents' basement, and don't have a job, and your life isn't working. Like, there are all these you know conspiracies out there that are holding you down. And there's an enormous audience for that, right? Much more of an audience for nonsense and for self-destruction than uh, there is an audience for recovery. <laughs> oh well, right? to, uh, to be a pundit is to feed the client's needs just like a prostitute, right? That's how you become successful as a pundit. You tell people what they want to hear. That people love to hear victimhood. And I'm not against victimhood. Right, all in-group identity has a substantial quantity of victimhood. We're just talking about how intense should your victimhood be. And generally speaking, people are not served by an intense sense of victimhood. So I'm all for walking around with a sense of victimhood on a scale of, say, 2 out of 10, possibly even 3. Now, occasionally going up to 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 in extreme circumstances. But for most people, having walking around with a sense of victimhood above a 2 or a 3 is maladaptive, right? Makes you more suspicious of our groups, more hostile to our groups, uh, predisposes you to a conspiratorial you know, frame of mind, uh, takes away, reduces your sense of agency. Now, some sense of victimhood, like at a 2 out of 10, right, that... It gives you an in-group identity, it gives you purpose and meaning in life, it bonds you to your in-group, but it's not so intense that it maladjusts you for dealing with wider society. So millennial woes effectively argues for and embodies a sense of victimhood that's operating at a 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10, right? And that's excellent for developing in-group identity and esprit de corps and bonding with people like yourself, but it's a terrible maladjustment for dealing with a multiracial, multicultural society. Is it? If you follow that advice, it's going to make you usually a loser in life. So, yeah, I noticed many people comment on my channel, oh, you know, how do we get rid of victimhood? You don't want to get rid of victimhood. It's just a matter of the intensity. Right? Just have a, operating at a 1 out of 10, 2 out of 10, occasionally dialing up to 3 or 4 out of 10. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. Right? You can't have in-group identity without a sense of victimhood. But how much do you want to stress it? How intense do you want it to be? Like, Do you want it to be the driving force in people's lives? No. I think that's generally maladaptive. Audience just want more vids from him. Not sure how active he is. Ford left his work a year ago. Maybe two. Yeah, I haven't paid much attention to millennial woes. It's just uh, it's just too easy. It's just like uh, picking picking wings off a fly. So many of the people are just too easy to to pick on. I, I just try to desist. That's, there's nothing new and important there. Now let's get back to this New Yorker article on Samuel Alito's battle against a secular America. Pretty scary stuff, right? It's crusade, and it's not over, guys. This is from the New Yorker. 
It was hardly inevitable that Alito would be assigned the Dobbs opinion. Joan Biskupic, a CNN analyst and the author of a biography of Chief Justice Roberts, has reported that Roberts privately lobbied fellow conservatives to save the constitutional right to abortion down to the bitter end. Roberts wanted to validate the particular restriction at issue in Dobbs, a Mississippi ban on virtually all abortions after 15 weeks, but he... So I guess Ann Coulter was right that Justice John Roberts has been a real disappointment on the court. Like he changed his, his vote to ratify Obamacare, which was a $2 trillion transfer over the course of a decade from productive Americans to less productive Americans. So Ann Coulter was right. Justice John Roberts has been a great disappointment for conservatives. Luckily, we now have five authentic conservatives on the court, aside from John Roberts. ...posed a wholesale rejection of Roe, which, among other things, had strengthened the notion that a right to privacy was implicit in the Constitution. If Roberts had successfully enlisted, say, the occasionally more moderate Kavanaugh, he would have had the authority to assign the opinion, as the Chief Justice typically does when he is in the majority. Indeed, Roberts might well have written the opinion himself, producing a text that felt more conciliatory than Alito's, something less openly contemptuous of the justices who had crafted Roe and its sequel, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and more mindful of the fact that a majority of Americans support abortion rights. But, So, when left-wing courts overturned referendums passed by the majority of the population, you don't hear you know, left-wing publications like the New Yorker and Los Angeles Times or New York Times saying, oh, you know, it's important that the court that be respectful of the majority opinion of the population. No, you crush the majority. So when the left's in power, they want to crush majority opinion. So when the majority of Californians voted for Roe v. Wade, had voted for Proposition 187 to deny benefits to illegal aliens, Right, important that that be crushed when majority of Californians voted against allowing same-sex marriage. And it's important that the court absolutely crush these bigoted, hateful, uneducated opinions. But when the right now has power on the Supreme Court, right, now, now suddenly the left wants the, the court to be respectful of the opinions of the majority of Americans. Why wasn't it important to the left that the courts be respectful of the majority of opinions? when the left was in power in the court and the right was winning the popular vote. So this is an article in the New Yorker. Justice told me it was quite clear coming into conference after the oral argument that Robert's rationale was going to be much narrower than what the other five conservative justices wanted to say. Given this gulf, Roberts couldn't insist on writing the main opinion himself. Traditionally, when the chief justice isn't in the majority, or is nominally voting with it but making a substantially different argument, the most senior justice in the winning block assigns the opinion. In this case, that was Thomas, and he chose Alito. After the draft leaked, many court observers predicted that, though the opinion's substance wasn't likely to change, its tone surely would. It might at least lose a chilling reference to an insufficient domestic supply of adoptable infants, a problem that would be fixed, presumably, by forcing more Americans to carry pregnancies to term. But the final verb... Okay, how about uh, not forcing, right? It's not forcing the majority of 
Americans, they can travel to another state. It's uh, changing incentives, right? It's incentivizing more people to carry babies to term. So if you want to adopt a white child, there basically aren't any, you know, white infants, healthy white infants to adopt in America. Right? You want to adopt a child in America, right? born in America, overwhelmingly, it has to be a black kid. Now, overwhelmingly, abortions are carried out for black women, women of color. Right? Those are the overwhelming number of abortions. So, uh, almost no, you know, Jewish children available for adoption anymore. You know, it used to be fairly common. Like if uh, a Jewish couple wanted to adopt a Jewish infant, like it could be arranged. But uh, since Roe v. Wade, nope, we can't find them in America. Back to this New Yorker article. Version was virtually unchanged, save for the addition of a sharp rebuke to the dissent. An investigation into the leak is supposedly ongoing. According to Piscubic, clerks were asked to sign affidavits and provide cell phone records. We saw an emboldened Alito this term, Lazarus said. Unlike when he first joined the court, he no longer needs to curry favor from the chief. Robert's view of Dobbs was characteristic. He has long favored narrowly tailored. And Spencer's big time. He presses ahead with his schemes, says uh, Art Bell. And schemes and scams. No, I don't think it's a scam. I, I think actually, because Richard Spencer's gone much smaller time, he's be become more humble. He's literally become sober, right? He's largely quit drinking. He has, you know, stopped talking about building the ethno state and, you know, absurd plans. So I think it's the very opposite of what you're saying, Art Bell. He has become more sober. His plans are much smaller. He's living much more in reality. And a sober Spencer, you know, a much more thoughtful Spencer, you know, much less deluded Spencer. Uh, it's a humbler Spencer. He's been humbled by life. So. I, I don't see any scams in what Richard Spencer's doing. He does a Substack for $9 a month. There's a ton of content on there. He produces courses on Plato and on Nietzsche. Uh, not a scam, right? I think these are authentic courses. You get what you pay for. So my perspective is very opposite of yours there, Art Bell. I think uh, Richard is doing you know, honest, realistic, value for money courses because this is a humbled and sober Richard Spencer. The Richard Spencer we saw in 2015, 2016, 2017 is a intoxicated Richard Spencer, uh, very well on under the influence of illegal drugs, but in virtually every live stream he was intoxicated. Uh, now getting a newly sober Spencer who will go several days apparently without taking a drink. Now, this is a better they're more pro-social, more humble, more down-to-earth uh, Richard Spencer. Alert opinions that foster consensus among the justices and, perhaps, avert political chaos. He once observed, if it's not necessary to decide more to dispose of a case... Okay, so... We, we all tend to try to craft compromises when that's in our best interest. When we don't need to craft compromises, 
right? We don't go through that arduous work. Crafting compromises is a lot of work. Then you just want to say what you believe. Like when we get to a place of safety and strength, where we feel like we can say what we believe, we say what we believe. Like Richard Spencer's been humbled, right? He's no longer saying nearly as much about what he believes. He is circumcising and circumscribing what he says to that which is socially acceptable, right? Because he's gone in the opposite trajectory of Samuel Alito. And Samuel Alito crafted painful compromises when he had to. Now he doesn't have to. Now he can be full-throated in what he believes, which is Spencer's had to go in the opposite direction. He's had to dial back what he believes and constrain himself to what's socially acceptable. In my view, it is necessary to decide more. Thomas and Alito have adopted a more combative approach, one that finds no great value in privileging precedent, especially... Paywall is going well, he's growing an empire. I'm not sure he's growing an empire, but he, he provides a ton of compelling content. Right? You get bang for your buck, $9 a month for a substack, and uh, you probably get like 15 hours a week, uh, 15 hours a month of original content. And if this is stuff you're interested in, yeah, it's it's bang for, your, bang for your buck. So first he was very concerned he'd be thrown off of Substack, but Richard's a very intelligent man. He's learning to play within the rules of the game. He's kept his place on Twitter, and he's maintaining his Substack, and he's not gratuitously making enemies. And it's interesting, Michael Edison Hayden, right, the Antifa activist, also serves as Southern Poverty Law Center journalist says that he knows things that the rest of us don't and that uh, Richard has repented for his sins and that uh, you know Richard's ab abandoned the whole you know racial game so Michael Edison Hayden made some interesting tweets saying that uh, people should lay off Richard Spencer so why should uh, Michael Edison Hayden an Antifa activist right it's a left-wing crusader this Southern Poverty Law Center hitman. Why is Thomas Edison Hayden, you know, this gay guy from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, why, why is he going to bat for Richard Spencer? And that's curious. These are open, open tweets that Michael Edison Hayden made about uh, a month ago, saying, "Lay off Richard Spencer." He says, Michael Edison Hayden says, you know, I know things that you don't know. To stop criticizing Richard Spencer. Stop giving Richard Spencer a hard time. So why is Antifa going to bat for Richard Spencer? Why is the Southern Poverty Law Center going to bat for Richard Spencer? Why is there activist Michael Edison Hayden saying he knows things that the rest of us don't, and that uh, Richard Spencer should not be, you know, harassed anymore? Like, what things does Michael Edison Hayden know that the rest of us don't? Curious minds want to know these things. If the precedent emanates from the 60s, when Chief Justice Earl Warren was pushing the court leftward, some justices, attentive to the immediate human risks of revoking the right to abortion, might have at least put on a show of sober humility. Well, there are risks in many different directions. It's not like there are only risks if you overturn Roe v. Wade. If you don't overturn Roe v. Wade, right, you're consenting to the killing of tens of thousands of babies. And is that not a risk too? How, how is the risk here only operating in one direction? No matter how convinced they were that 
they were correct, and no matter how cognizant they were of having had the last word, they might, in public appearances, have tried not to antagonize the many Americans. Look, when tens of thousands of lives are at stake, uh, why would you pussyfoot around? Why would you not issue a clarion call for life? The tens of thousands of lives are at stake. Why would you be, you know, so sensitive and cautious right, when thousands and thousands of lives are at stake? No Americans who think differently. At a minimum, they might have resisted making a gloating joke. In July, Alito, who was 72, delivered a speech at the Palazzo Colonna in Rome for a gathering hosted by the University of Notre Dame Law School's Religious Liberty Initiative, a conservative group that has filed amicus briefs before the court. Faculty affiliated with the group also filed briefs in Dobbs. Legal analysts at Slate noted that the spectacle of a justice chumming it up with the same conservative lawyers who were involved in cases before the court creates the unseemly impression of judicial indifference toward basic judicial ethics rules. Alito had donned stylish, horn-rimmed glasses that he doesn't usually wear in public, and he had a new, graying beard. Though the speech focused... Wait, 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 wait. Linda Greenhouse, NPR correspondent, right, had the journalistic beat of covering the U.S. Supreme Court, was very good friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So when the left chums it up, when left-wing justices chum it up with journalists, with, you know, fellow left-wing elites, that's, that's not a problem. It's only a problem when a right-wing justice, you know, chums it up with some uh, traditional group, right? Why isn't uh, Linda Greenhouse's long friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg while she's covering the U.S. Supreme Court for NPR? Why isn't that a problem? Okay, we've got an issue here. So we got this boat you know, going right in front of a ferry. Okay, let's see if we... We're going to have a collision here. That's, that's Meshuggah. Absolutely crazy. Like, what on earth is that little boat thinking? That's crazy. He just cut right in front of a ferry. And here we got the New South Wales police. They're going to give him a ticket? No, they don't appear to be giving him a ticket. This little dinky speedboat, you know, cutting in front of a massive onrushing ferry. But uh, New South Wales police not interested in giving this guy a ticket. I mean, that was pretty reckless. Come on, guys. Just on one of his favorite topics, the supposed vulnerability of religious freedom in increasingly secular societies. Wait, the supposed vulnerability of religious freedom in secular societies. Of course religious freedom is being impinged when you expand competing rights and give them precedence over religious freedom. Of course religious freedom is being reduced when uh, you diminish freedom of association to ever increase you know, gay rights, transcend transsexual rights, rights of you know, the individual to be who he wants to be, say what he wants to say, sing what he wants to sing. 
right? You're reducing the rights of people to freely associate, to you know, build their own communities. You can only have a safe space like uh, Sydney Harbour, Sydney Opera House, by excluding people, right? When you reduce the ability of religious communities to exclude people, to not employ people, to not rent to people, that you are reducing religious rights. Religion isn't just something that takes place in a church or synagogue. Right? The primary basis for Judaism, for example, is not the synagogue, it's the home. So you reduce the rights of religious people and who they can live with, live around, associate with, employ, you know, how they, they can practice in the public square. Yeah, you're reducing religious rights. So she's talking about, you know, supposed reduction in religious liberty. He couldn't resist crowing about Dobbs. I had the honor this term of writing, I think, the only Supreme Court decision in the history of that institution that has been lambasted by a whole string of foreign leaders, Alito said. One of these was former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but he paid the price. Johnson resigned earlier this summer. The audience laughed heartily. But others are still in office, Alito continued, suppressing a smile. President Macron and Prime Minister Trudeau, I believe, are two. The laughter grew fainter, but Alito was on a roll. It was time for a dad joke about Voldemort. What really wounded me was when the Duke of Sussex addressed the United Nations and seemed to compare the decision whose name may not be spoken with the Russian attack on Ukraine. The Duke of Sussex, more commonly known as Prince Harry, had said, This has been a painful year in a painful decade, citing the pandemic, climate change, the war in Ukraine, the spread of disinformation, and the... Yeah, the reduction in uh, civil liberties. Well, reduction of uh, one liberty, such as the right to an abortion, that expands liberty to tens of thousands of other people. You know, they have the, the right to live. And so it's not like you can ever reduce rights for one group and not expand them for another, or expand them for one group and not uh, reduce them for another. And there's not like an infinite quantity of uh, rights in the world where uh, no one ever suffers when you know one group gets gets the advantage, gets an expansion, gets a sacred status. rolling back of constitutional rights here in the United States. Alito's smile reappeared. On the bench, he's often serious, even scowling, especially when his liberal colleagues are speaking. But in Rome... All right, well, when I'm under pressure, I'm, a, you know, I'm often serious. And when I'm doing hard work, sometimes I'm scowling. And when I'm dealing with things that I don't like, I get unpleasant looks on my face. Yeah. Guess what? When we're happy, when we're comfortable, when we're with like-minded people, you know, we're, we're much more likely to be positive. And uh, when we're dealing with nasty stuff that we don't like, we're dealing with difficult things. Yeah, our face looks different. shots at his critics for the amusement of a like-minded audience he was living his best life 
Alito's childhood and adolescence coincided with a social transformation for which the Warren court provided the legal underpinnings. Warren, a Republican and an Eisenhower nominee, who turned out to be far more liberal than those affiliations implied, presided over the court from 1953 to 1969. Alito was born in 1950 in Trenton, New Jersey, in a mostly Italian-American enclave. Okay, let me uh, just do a little fast-forwarding here. Let's get at least to when he gets to uh, law school. Then in 1968, the school didn't have a particularly rebellious student body. During the 1969 moratorium to end the war in Vietnam, the school's Students for a Democratic Society contingent carried signs that said, Even Princeton! Nevertheless, the university saw its share of sit-ins and marches during Alito's years there, and his already deeply held political allegiances put him at odds with the left-wing youth culture surrounding him. His cultural tastes made him an outlier, too. Alito once recalled spending New Year's Eve 1967 in front of the TV at home, watching a band that his parents liked, Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians. One of Alito's college roommates, David Grace, told me, Sam was offended by the more extreme instances of anti-war protest. Alito has said that he could understand opposition to the war, but felt it was very wrong to allow discontent with government leaders to be expressed as antipathy to the United States. In Alito's sophomore... So they portray Sam Alito as some square that he, he would watch a band on TV that his parents liked. You know, God forbid that you carry on any cultural practices, traditional practices, religious practices, you know, that your parents liked. God forbid. More year, students staged an anti-war strike after President Richard Nixon ordered the invasion of Cambodia. 80% of the student body took part. The administration announced that students could waive their exams. By several accounts, Alito was frustrated that the strikes might disrupt his education. Oh, wow. So, who wouldn't be frustrated if the uh, administration says, oh, you can just waive your exams, and we're just going to give up on uh, providing you an education. Uh, you kids know better. Uh, you're our conscience. You know, go ahead with your protests against the war. You know, we'll just cave over. We'll just abandon our responsibilities to provide you with an education. Uh, it sounds like uh, Sam Alito, in some respects, was uh, quite the uh, quite the mature young man. This is the New Yorker article: Sam Alito's crusade against the secular America. He wasn't alone. His classmate, George Carpinello, was liberal and opposed the war, but, like Alito, he came from a more humble background than many Princetonians. Carpinello, who was now a litigator in Albany, said, We felt so lucky to be there, and the strike seemed, to us, to attack what was, in our mind, such a great institution. I suspect Sam is still carrying some of that. As conservative as Alito was, he was not a campus firebrand. A Princeton classmate who has kept in touch with him told me, Firebrand would be the last way you would have described Sam. More like quiet, and you barely knew he was there. Alito joined the Princeton debate team, however, as did Grace. 
Okay, that's why these notions of people that just have an inherent personality, that some people are quiet, others are extroverted, that some people are careful, other people are careless, some people are really into new experiences, other people are very closed off, some people are highly conscientious, other people, you know, highly neurotic, right? This is all situation dependent. You know, a lot of people are quiet and cautious, just quiet and cautious in some situations. And the situation's frequently the boss. It's not the, the individual's personality. So Sam Alita is a classic example. Quiet and cautious in some situations when he feels confident and safe and powerful, his personality changes. Just as all of our personalities change when we're under fire, when we're under pressure, when we're struggling to form you know, some sort of compromise, right, we're going to be careful and even quiet when we feel safe and strong and comfortable and confident. Right? We become much more outgoing. So back to uh, New Yorker article here. I hope. Come on, man. Trying to run a high high quality production. I don't hear the article. What the heck? They drove the team's old Chevrolet to various tournaments, sometimes stopping to visit Alito's sister Rosemary at Smith College, or to have dinner in Hamilton Township. With so he was more into going to debate tournaments and uh, listening to rock and roll and smoking dope and participating in free love. Alito's parents. Alito and Grace enjoyed themselves, but not exactly in the countercultural spirit of the era. After a debate in Ontario, a Canadian customs agent reportedly stopped the team and found bottles of port in the trunk. Princeton went co-ed in Alito's sophomore year. Alice Kalikia, who became a friend of his, remembered hanging out with him around a microwave oven that had just been installed on campus, warming up chocolate chip cookies while talking about Italy and the philosopher John Rawls. Kalikia, who dated one of Alito's friends, noted that Alito was always very respectful of me, adding, a lot of male classmates were not. Still, feminism was in the air. Young women were talking about new possibilities for living independent and fulfilling lives, about ways they might explore sexuality without committing to marriage and family right off, about their determination to create a less misogynistic society. In 1973, the year after Alito graduated, the Supreme Court issued its Roe decision. Kalikian, now a history professor at Brandeis University, told me, Sam was Trenton Italian and I was Chicago Armenian. That felt to her like some sort of commonality, but they had different attitudes toward the tight-knit, convention-bound immigrant communities from which they'd emerged. She felt that she was breaking away from hers. He remained tethered to his. Alito later told an interviewer for the National... Okay, so belonging to a community always comes with a price. Right, just doing your own thing without regard to how that might affect other people in your group, and that's going to limit your ability to live in community. So some people just have an allergy to living in community because it's a challenge, it's difficult, right? You just can't do your own thing and uh, not pay a price. 
Right? Living in community requires self-discipline, self-abnegation, self-sacrifice. Now, the emotional energy and the strength, the, the benefits, uh, the connection, right, I think are all worth it. But uh, some people just put a much higher value on living in community than, than others. You know, I can't imagine life without living in community. Italian-American foundation that he couldn't relate to his peers' view that their elders had become affluent by taking advantage of other people. They had bad values. They were very materialistic. Alito went on. I thought that whole view of my parents, of the generation to which my parents belonged, was false. Perhaps it was true of some people in that generation, but certainly it wasn't true of the people that I knew. At his Supreme Court confirmation hearings, he described his New Jersey suburb as a stronghold of traditional values that felt safe. At Princeton, he said, he saw some very privileged people behaving irresponsibly. And I couldn't help making a contrast between some of the worst of what I saw on the campus and the good sense and the decency of some of the people back in my own community. Alito's grandfather came to America from Italy in 1913. An unskilled laborer for the Pennsylvania Railroad, he was employed irregularly during the Depression. Okay, so if you have a more traditional sense of self, you believe that we're porous, and therefore we're affected by our parents, by our grandparents, by our nieces, by our neighbors, right? That, that uh, you can't understand the self outside of its community, outside of its tribe. So the liberal modern conception of the self is that we're autonomous, strategic, buffered individuals that can you know, make our own way in life by using our reason and that we're born with certain inalienable rights. That's the liberal conception of the self. The traditional conception of the self is that we're born into a family and a tribe and a community and a nation and this sense of identity, this sense of connection, this sense of family and extended family is the most important thing about us. That uh, we're Jewish or Christian or Armenian, that uh, you know, Seventh-day Adventist, that uh, we're born in a particular community and whatever rights we're afforded, right, those rights come from the community, the tribe, the nation, and that they're going to vary depending on the situation depending on, on time and place. And that, you know, our, our rights are less important than our membership in a particular family, tribe, community, nation. His wife and infant son Samuel soon joined him in Trenton. Alito's father grew up poor, but he excelled in school and became a teacher who set exacting academic standards for his own two children. At night, Alito told the interviewer for the National Italian American Foundation, his father sat with him and his sister Rosemary at the kitchen table, going over every single word of their school papers. Alito went on to start up. I remember when I was growing up, uh, other kids would you know, have parents who would check their homework. You know, my parents never checked my homework. Right? They. They had nothing to do with my homework. So did, did your parents work with you on your homework? Did they check off your homework every night? No, my parents were much more detached. Like my brother, I think when he was like 14 or 15, he would just hitchhike to Bathurst, which is like two hours drive away to watch races all day and then come home at night and, you know, with, with nary a, a question or concern from my parents. From about age five, I would wander off into the bush all day they're chopping down trees with a tomahawk. 
Oh, they, they checked your homework, bro? Yeah, my parents never did that. Like, I would just wander off all day, you know, from about age five into the bush, you know, with poisonous snakes around, chopping down trees, blazing trails. Come home at lunch, you know, get a bit of tucker in me, then, you know, head back out into the brush and the bush. It was very painful, but I think that's how you have to learn writing. Rosemary now practices employment law in New Jersey. Their mother, Rose Fredusco Alito, whom Alito has called a very intelligent, very determined, very strong-willed person, was an elementary school teacher and a principal. In 2006, she told the Washington Post that, When the first baby came, I said, Sam, our children are going to be the smartest children in Hamilton Township. Alito had big plans for himself, too. His senior year yearbook entry at Princeton shows a young man with neatly trimmed hair and a serious gaze behind bulky eyeglasses. The entry reads, Sam intends to go to law school and eventually to warm a seat on the Supreme Court. Years later, when he sat on the court, he described the line as a joke. If it was, it was a subtle one. While at Princeton, Alito was enrolled in ROTC, and he was upset when the Board of Trustees voted in 1970 to terminate the program over the course of the next two years. At his court confirmation hearings, he said the prevailing attitude on campus had been that Princeton would somehow be sullied if people in uniform were walking around. Yeah, that is kind of absurd, right? So all these elite premier universities that wanted nothing to do with the ROTC, which is you know, a military program, Right? They want nothing to do with the military, which secures them, keeps them safe, protects them. And uh, the, the, you know, Princeton somehow would be sullied. Yeah, I, I think I share Samuel Alito's attitudes to how fatuous that is. The program was reinstated as an extracurricular activity in 1972, but the situation continued to irk Alito. During his confirmation hearings, Democratic senators, Joe Biden among them, pressed him to answer why, on his 1985 application for the Office of Legal Counsel job, he had listed membership in an organization called the Concerned Alumni of Princeton, CAP. The group was made up of disgruntled former Princetonians who criticized various changes on campus, including co-education and the university's efforts to recruit minorities and public school graduates. Princeton, the group's founder declared, should consist of a body of men relatively homogenous in interests and backgrounds. Right, so the more you have in common with people, right, the better you're going to get along. You know, the less crime you're going to have, the more social cohesion, the more social trust. You know, everything's going to work more smoothly. You're going to need you know, less litigation, you know, fewer laws, less regulation. Right, once... Once you have a, a strong corporate identity, you don't have to litigate every little thing. You don't have to negotiate every little thing. You know, it's wonderful when you can be with you know, like-minded people, people like yourself, like a normal person just feels less tension. They feel more at ease in the world and things work better. So there are advantages to diversity as well, but it comes with tremendous prices. You get more litigation, more regulation, people feel less safe that you have to negotiate more little things so it's not like one approach is just inherently better than the other so when, when Princeton became co-ed 
right? There was a loss of social trust, social cohesion, uh, loss of, of bonding between people. The, the campus became more, more fragmented. Right? When women enter the picture, you know, men feel less at ease. They start having to regulate their own speech and behavior much more. So it's not like, oh, we're just going to you know, increase rights for one group, but uh, that's not going to come at a price to anyone else. Of course it comes at a price. And men have dramatically changed their speech and behavior. When women enter the picture, they are less comfortable. You know, with America and extreme diversity, you know, everybody feels Ill at ease you know, mixing with people completely unlike themselves. Senator Patrick Leahy told Alito he was puzzled that someone with his background would want to join such an ultra-WASP club. Alito said that he didn't recall joining the group, but had likely been prompted by his objection to the downgrading of the ROTC program, which CAP also cared about, though not as much as it cared about preserving Princeton for elite white males. Another classmate of Alito's, the future Fox News... Often when you form coalitions, right, when there's an issue that's of pressing you know, importance to you, you make alliances with, with people who you otherwise would not feel that much in common with. So it's not terribly surprising that uh, Samuel Vita would, would do that. Yeah, that's the Holland America 